0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and our conversation with Professor Joseph Skloot. Joseph Skloot is the Rabbi Aaron D. Pankin, Assistant Professor of Modern Jewish Intellectual History at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York. He is an historian of Jewish culture and religious thought in the early modern and modern periods. He received his PhD in Jewish history from Columbia University and his rabbinical ordination from HUCJIR. His writings have appeared in Modern Judaism, the CCAR Journal, and several anthologies. And today we're going to discuss his new book, First Impressions, Sefer Hasidim and Early Modern Hebrew Printing, which won a 2023 Jordan Schnitzer First Book Award from the Association for Jewish Studies. Joe Sklut, welcome to the College Commons podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be able to speak to uh, your, your listeners. This is a podcast that I do listen to.
0: It's going to be a treat for everyone I know. Before we get into the Jewish content of your book, I'd like to ask you to tell us about the power of printing, not merely as a technical advance in mass dissemination of ideas, but also as a key part of the ideas themselves. In short, tell us why printing is more than just the transcription of handwritten words verbatim from one page to printed words on another page.
1: So this is a crucial point. Concealed in your question is an argument. The argument is that printing is, in fact, something more than just the transmission of information, more than a means of communication. We popularly think of printing as something akin to a Xerox machine. That is to say, printers took pre-existing texts, and rather than copying them one by one by hand, were able to make multiple copies at the same time. Now, it's true that printing did allow for the mass dissemination of information. And no doubt that a printed book in the 16th century could have a print run of up to a thousand, sometimes even more copies. In the medieval period, a book that was produced by hand very often uh, uh, you know, could take a year to produce. So yes. Printing was a means of mass dissemination, but it was not like a Xerox machine. It was not a means of duplication. It was actually a creative act, a process whereby information in one medium was uh, transformed, adapted, packaged in new ways, in ways that actually heretofore did not exist. So an example of this is the title page. Handwritten books did not have title pages. We go into a bookstore today and we look at the cover and the title page of a book in order to discern whether we should buy it or not. Manuscript books did not have title pages, but printed books did. And that changed the way books were marketed and appreciated by consumers. There are a whole host of other ways that printed books differed from handwritten books. But what is notable is, is that all of those differences, those title pages were created by someone. And that someone was, uh, almost always very different from the person who actually wrote the text within the book. And that person who created the title page was the printer. So printers had immense power to shape the way books were read appreciated, understood, and purchased.
0: All of which shaped the trajectory and ultimately the actual nature of the ideas contained therein. So there's a lot at stake in printing. And there's also something at stake in understanding the role of Jewish civilization outside of the confines of Judaism. Why is it that Jewish texts are relevant to the history of printing at large beyond the Jewish world and Jewish readership?
1: If you permit me, I'd love to expand the question and say, how is it that Jewish texts are important to the history of written culture generally and of reading generally? And I would argue that they are essential to this story. You can actually go to Broadway today and see a musical about the invention of movable type pioneered by Gutenberg in 1455 in the city of Strasbourg. And, and in that show, and as is well known, Gutenberg, of course, produces his Bible, which importantly does not look all that different from the manuscript Bibles that preceded it. And the period of the five decades, uh, four and a half decades, following Gutenberg's invention, printed books very much looked like manuscript books. Beginning in the year 1501, something begins to happen where books begin to acquire the rec- recognizable forms of our books today. They begin to requ- acquire the, the title pages that, that I mentioned earlier, and other, uh, other features as well. Jews, Hebrew printers were among the second generation of printers to pioneer the, the development of all these new technologies that are associated with printing. Jews represent a highly literate minority within European societies, and they have a, have a tradition of studying books. And so they represent a market that can be exploited by entrepreneurs. And it's, it's precisely that market that, uh, that the printers, both Jewish and Christian exploit in order to pursue profit. It's in the process of the development of that market that many of the technologies and, and ideas associated with printing that become widely replicated emerge within the context of Hebrew and Jewish printing. So that's that's one important point. The other important point is, is that um, the, the history of, of Jewish printing represents in some ways a kind of microcosm of the larger story of the history of the development of movable type printing more generally. We can use the data from the story of the emergence of Hebrew printing to generalize about the emergence of printing in Europe and beyond. And 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 that is, that is a crucial point, right? If, for instance, Jews are by and large more literate than the rest of the population in Europe, then you can pose the question, are the phenomena that you observe among Jews and Jewish readers, ones that are replicated at a later stage among European readers as literacy uh, increases? And it's notable that literacy takes a long time to increase within Europe, um, not until the 19th to 20th centuries, do you see mass literacy in a way that existed uh, within the Jewish community in the centuries beforehand. So uh, the Jewish community represents a kind of microcosm of the story of printing. And, and I would just add, we are now in the throes of another media revolution, the digital revolution, And what we observe and the way Jews adapt and adopt digital technologies to produce and transmit and consume text, those can be fruitfully studied to understand the broader impact of digitization on cultures of reading and scholarship. The notion of uh, reading as a religious practice is one that is, of course, as I mentioned, embedded within Judaism. It is also one that is embedded within Protestantism as well. And so it is a very fruitful comparison that could be made to talk about how Jews read printed Hebrew books and how Protestants read printed Hebrew books. What are the similarities? What are the differences?
0: We've spoken a lot about the form, but tell us a bit about the content of the topic of your book, Sefer Hasidim. What is it? What does it teach? And what does it mean?
1: So uh, my book, First Impressions, is a book about books. And in particular, it's a book about one book, which is meant to serve as a kind of model uh, or broader case study for talking about other books as well. This book, Sefer Hasidim, was produced in 1538 at the printing press of the partners of Bologna, known as Hashutafim. This was a group of Jewish scholars and entrepreneurs who worked in the silk business in the city of Bologna in central Italy. Bologna is famous for being the site of the uh, oldest European university. Um, it's also famous for its delicious food. It's known in Italy as La Grassa, the fat one, because of the quantity of oil and butter that is used in the cooking, which is, signifies its wealth. And Bologna achieved such great wealth through its silk mills. In the 16th century, Bologna became the center of silk production in Europe. And silk was and remains a very desirable textile. The printers uh, of this book, Sefer Hasidim, worked in the silk business. Uh, They proudly identified themselves as makers of silk on the title pages of their books, and they produced nine books over the course of five years from 1536 to 1540. One of them being this book Sefer Hasidim. Sefer Hasidim is actually a, you might say a compendium, an anthology of texts that are much older, that come from the 12th and 13th centuries in the land of the Rhine river valley in what is now Germany. And also from the area of Alsace, France. And these texts are short blocks of stories, their laws, their uh, legal cases. They are extracts from other older materials, um, and they generally have a Germanic or French flavor. There are very frequent German, Yiddish, and and Judeo French. Uh, expressions and phrases noted in them. In one case, famously at the very beginning of the book, there's a French song that's cited. And all of these blocks of text existed in multiple manuscripts that circulated throughout Europe in the beginning of the 13th century and continuing in the 14th and 15th century. And then in the 16th century, this group of silk makers in Bologna decide to print a copy of the book. What's notable is, is that the manuscripts that we have differ significantly, not entirely, but significantly from the printed book. And what I have done in, in my book, First Impressions, is try to understand what the partners of Bologna, those, those printers, did in order to create the printed book of Sefer Hasidim out of the purported fragments of manuscripts that we still have today. Out of those manuscripts that are older than the printed book, what can they tell us about that when I compare them to the printed book? And in that, in that comparison, we learn a lot about the interventions, the work of creation, of adaptation, of packaging, of transformation that the, the partners of Bologna, the printers, did when they created Sefer Hasidim. And by implication, what I argue is is that this is actually not a, a, a unique process? The pro- this was emblematic of the processes that all Hebrew books went through, in especially in this early period of the 16th century, in order to create the Hebrew library that actually persists till this day. In fact, the uh, the edition that the partners created of Sefer Chassidim was printed numerous times between 1538 and the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, another version of the book was was printed. And today, the Bologna edition continues to be reprinted uh, alongside the other version of the book as well.
0: The title of the book, Sefer Hasidi, means Book of the Pious. And as such, it's laden with all kinds of religious implications. And those religious implications seem to persist, but they also draw us back Not only to the printing, which layered on meaning and purpose, but to all the manuscript generations prior to the printing. When historians think about the importance of manuscripts, that is, of handwritten texts, we tend to think in two dimensions, quantity and consistency. That is to say, if we find many, many copies of a given text, a manuscript, handwritten, as you said, which takes so much time and effort. We infer that such a text had great currency, and then separately, if we find great consistency among such handwritten copies, we attribute great authority to the text. Many of us will know that if a historian were to assess the importance of the Sefer Torah, the Torah scroll, they would note, on the one hand, its wide distribution, and on the other hand, how remarkably consistent the content is, even from modern scrolls today. And so from these facts, a hypothetical historian would conclude that the Torah scroll has great importance, both currency and authority, among its consumers, namely worldwide Jewry in any given generation. By these measures, how does Sefer Hasidim stack up, and what do we conclude about it? Uh, I would suggest
1: to you that Sefer Hasidim exists to us in, in about 20 different manuscript forms today. Those manuscripts have been catalogued, and transcribed by the scholar Peter Schaefer, formerly of uh, Princeton, and and one can go online and actually see those manuscripts. Um, They've also been digitized by the National Library of Israel. The fact that there are 20 such manuscripts indicates that this was a text that was read by Jews, and that the fact that those manuscripts come from, among other places, Italy, Spain, Of course, France and Germany, we can make determinations about the origins of these manuscripts based on the handwriting. There was awareness of the existence of this text in the medieval period. And we can say the fact that we have 20 manuscripts means that we can make certain assumptions that there were perhaps many more manuscripts that just have not survived, right? That, That are not available to us because they were destroyed through the vicissitudes of history. But these manuscripts are not consistent. And that's a crucial point. On the most basic level, they don't all share the name Sefer Hasidim. Some of them do, but some of them have other names, such as Sefer Hasidut, which is somewhat different. Instead of the Book of the Pious, it's the Book of Piety. A number of them are titled with a variation on the phrase Likutim Mi Sefer Hasidim, which means gleanings taken from something known as Sefer Hasidim. As if to say that these are scraps, extracts from a much larger work that a scribe chose to write down, the choicest extracts of a book known as Sefer Hasidim. So when we speak about consistency, we can say that these manuscripts are remarkably inconsistent. And it is primarily the judgment of scholars that places them all in the ambit of of Sefer Hasidim, because some of them lack titles altogether, right? And that's crucially important because what happens when Sefer Hasidim is printed in 1538 is that whereas previously there was a very diffuse awareness of something known as Sefer Hasidim, what printing does is it creates a certain kind of a standard against which uh, other versions of Sefer Hasidim might be measured. So that after 1538, when a scholar speaks about Sefer Hasidim, he is most definitely speaking about the Sefer Hasidim that was printed in Bologna for the first time in 1538. He's not speaking about a manuscript that might differ significantly from that Bologna
0: edition. The College Commons podcast belongs to HUC Connect, the online platform for continuing education from the Hebrew Union College. HUC Connect includes webinars, syllabi for community learning, and masterclasses for HUC alumni, with interviews, expert panels, and classroom materials on topics ranging from the arts to civil society, Israel, and much more. Check us out at huc.edu hucconnect Now, back to our interview. Let's talk for a minute about language, both in the macro and the micro. What do we learn from the language of Sefer Hasidim on the macro level? And what do we learn from the word choice of Sefer Hasidim in the printed edition on the micro level?
1: So, when we talk about language, uh, it's important to note my study here is in the subtitled Sefer Hasidim in Early Modern Hebrew Printing. I really do have the focus on Hebrew works. That is, A, a my area of expertise, but uh, it it also speaks to my own interests in thinking about texts that achieve a certain kind of canonicity, that is to say, they become part of the canon, part of the library of Jewish sacred literature. And that literature is primarily almost always, as Jews have perceived it, written in the Lashon HaKodesh, the Hebrew language. So I'm interested in, in Hebrew books. Uh, and Sefer Chassidim is is one of them. But I, as I mentioned earlier, Sefer Chassidim includes uh, words and phrases in other languages as well. That is Yiddish and that is uh, Judeo-French. And that is notable because uh, until the founding of the state of Israel, Jews did not use Hebrew as a language of communication um, in their day-to-day lives. They used vernacular languages, right? In, in the ancient world, they... They may have used Greek or Aramaic uh, in the medieval world. They may have used Yiddish or, or Spanish, uh, what ultimately comes to be known as Ladino or Judeo Italian. Right, the Jews are using other vernaculars, and notably, when we speak about printing, what's crucial to note is is that uh, Jewish printers who sought out Jewish readerships not only printed in Hebrew but also printed in the vernacular languages that Jews spoke and read as well. And that is one very important feature of 16th century printing is the explosion of vernacular books. But when when we turn to Hebrew and we turn to Sefer Chassidim in particular, one of the things that the first printers, the partners of Bologna do when they print their book is they put the text through a rather intensive process of censorship. They're uh, eager to make their book more palatable to potential readers who are not only Jews, but may also be Christians. They also don't want to run afoul of their rulers. In 1536, Bologna is ruled by the Pope, and it is from the Pope, Pope Paul III, that the partners of Bologna receive what's known as a condota, uh, charter to print Hebrew books. They manage, they engage in a, a, in a remarkable backroom lobbying campaign to get the Pope to grant them a license to print Hebrew books in Bologna. And uh, actually that license is confirmed multiple times, which means that they they maintained ongoing uh, diplomatic relations, as it were, with the Pope. That required wealth, that required influence. That's a whole other story. But part of their condota, part of their license, stipulated that nothing they printed would, uh, in the words of the license, blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And so any reference to Christianity into Jesus needed to be removed from the text uh, and and more than that as well the partners knew that if something was found in the text that would be considered offensive to christians they would ultimately suffer for it and uh, they would they would lose more than their license and so they subjected sefer hasidim which comes from, as I said, the medieval Rhinish context, a universe where Jews and Christians are encountering each other, where Jews uh, are suffering persecution at the hands of Christians, where Jews and Christians are engaged in ongoing business transactions, where Christian clergy are proselytizing to Jews, where Christian clergy are also learning and studying with Jews, and Sefer Hasidim records all of this. And so the partners had to make sure that no pejorative terms that exist in the text were passed on into the printed version. And so they subjected the text to a rather tensive form of censorship. Among other things, words like "goy," uh, which refers to a non-Jew. But which Christians perceived and Jews too as an insult, the partners removed that term from the text. Now, one last point, which uh, which is notable, because of course we are all familiar with digital technologies. Printing was not like scanning today. There was no OCR, and there was no find and replace function. Right, so the <laughs> printers didn't need, couldn't, pre, you know, type in. Find all references to Goy and replace with X. So combing through these texts, even if it was intensive, it was a rather haphazard process. And so words like Goy did slip through, even their editorial
0: process. And we can imagine how such censorship and the cracks through which the censorship fell in a combined and haphazard fashion could affect the composite text and its meaning and how it was received. So it seems pretty consequential in a number of different directions. But there's an even sort of deeper level of complexity and cultural situation that I think is very counterintuitive for contemporary audiences. And that complexity is the very idea of an author at all. And the way printing inflects our notion of authorship. First of all, we don't properly know who wrote the Sefer Hasidim or, as you said, that it even constitutes a book in the first place. But in truth, the very idea of a singular author altogether has changed dramatically since the 13th century when the core text of Sefer Hasidim was composed, as you point out in your book. So what does Sefer Hasidim and its printing story teach us about the evolution of the very idea of a book's author?
1: So I mentioned title pages, for instance. What's notable is that the title page has the title of the, of the work very often, but, and it also has prominently the author's name. Following from Foucault, the author serves a certain function, right? Foucault, the theorist, talked about the role of the author as someone who could be disciplined if the contents of the work was found by those in power to be transgressive. We see this because, of course, we're living in times where new modes of censorship are being deployed in societies around the world. We are seeing how authors are disciplined for their texts. but. One role that an author's name on the title page has, Foucault tells us, is that's the person where the buck stops. The buck stops with the author. And if I say something wrong in my book, you can go to the author and blame me. Another function that the author has is the author's name lends authority to the work. Right? If I am a notable person, if I'm known in a society among readers as a reputable person, then my name on the title page of my book lends authority to it. And potentially we all know going into a bookstore. Oh, I see that there's a book by a favorite author. Let's say Josh Holo. Oh, and Josh Holo has produced just now another book. I know him. I trust him. I like his work. So I'm going to read that book too. So the author function also has a way of generating interest uh, along with authority. With regard to Sefer Hasidim, what is notable is is that in the medieval period, that is prior to uh, the period of printing, books generally didn't have title pages and authors were not always associated with them, especially in Northern Europe. Something different happens in the, in the Southern Mediterranean and the Arabic speaking world. But in Northern Europe and in the formerly Roman Empire, books were generally seen as, uh, as collaborative entities. A book was meant to uh, encapsulate wisdom that was deemed canonical over the centuries. And, and, and writers, that is, that is people who wrote them, scribes, would often collect the work of multiple figures, multiple writers, multiple thinkers, multiple teachers, and gather them together in one volume. What emerges with, with printed books is, is that uh, books become associated with a single named individual rather than the collected wisdom of a particular place or society or some ancient figure no longer living. right? And what happens in the case of Sefer Hasidim is, is that the edition the that the partners of Bologna produce is tied to one individual, in this case, an, a medieval figure by the name of uh, Yehuda Hechasid, Judah the Pious. And not on their title page, interestingly enough, but in their introduction, they say, This is the book that Yehuda Hechasid, Judah the Pious, the great sage, wrote. So the printers tie their book to this individual. Why do they choose him? Well, very likely there were traditions that associated those manuscripts with him. But notably, the book that they produced, Sefer Chassidim, says that all books should be written anonymously. And so the partners of this first edition of the book contravene the book's own advice, and they place the name of of an individual, this fellow Judah, in the introduction in order to associate it with him. And you can speculate that the reason why was because Judah was a somewhat well-known figure from around the same period. We have books of stories, which include stories about him, folk tales about him. So it is likely that he was understood as a venerable precursor, uh, an ancestor, and that these stories could be associated with him and that his name would confer authority upon the book.
0: Okay, so there's an interesting contradiction whereby the book attributes to a single author that the book itself thinks is a bad idea that shouldn't have an author. I want to dive into another contradiction or complexity, which is deeply, deeply interwoven into the DNA of Jewish civilization, which is the relationship between the oral and the written. The, The very rabbinic tradition, which essentially is the Judaism that we have today, relies on the principle that Moses received two Torahs from God on Mount Sinai. One that was written down and that we call Torah today, meaning the Torah scroll, and the other one which was oral and ostensibly handed down from generation to generation without being written for you know over a millennium, millennium and a half, until it was committed to writing in the form of what we call the Mishnah and the Gemara or the Talmud. In fact, we still call the Talmud the oral law today, even though it's been written down. Similarly, Sefer Hasidim seeks to capture an oral tradition or traditions, and a partially secret tradition at that, in a written medium. So what's going on with Judaism's relationship to speaking, teaching, writing, and printing as a religious exercise?
1: This is a Question that I am fascinated by, I think about it all the time, and it's not lost on me that, again, uh, living in a digitized world, that we are in some ways returning to some of the features of the oral culture that predominated in the ancient world. That the digital actually has led to a renaissance of the oral in some ways we need but uh, go to YouTube or TikTok to recognize that. The tradition that you speak of, of Moses receiving two Torahs on Mount Sinai, one written and one oral, is crucial to the self-understanding of the rabbis and of rabbis in general. It's notable that uh, according to the Talmud itself, that which is written should only be taught in writing and that which is oral must remain taught orally. So there was a prohibition on writing down the oral tradition. And then we are told that the oral tradition had to be written down because in the face of persecution and in the face of the potential for forgetting, that is there would be a break in the telephone, it was better to violate the commandment of not writing down the oral tradition to prevent Torah from being forgotten in Israel. That is the way the tradition understands how uh, the oral Torah ended up in writing. So there is this uh, ancient bias against the written word, which actually goes back uh, and is shared in the classical tradition. Plato in in the Phaedrus has Socrates come out as the uh, foremost skeptic of writing, Mm -hmm. and so Judaism shares that skepticism of the written tradition.
0: I think it actually inverts it. I think Socrates was suspicious of writing because it promoted forgetting. It was a crutch. Whereas we accepted writing as a hedge against forgetting.
1: Well, at least the way the tradition makes it clear, uh, we accepted writing as a hedge against forgetting grudgingly. Yes. And then we willingly embraced it with wild
0: abandon. <laughs> Great. Right? That's the moral of the story of your book. <laughs>
1: and that is the moral of the story of, of my book. What is notable, and this this was Plato's critique, it's also the rabbi's critique, and it's not just the rabbis of antiquity's critique. One of my favorite passages of Moses Mendelssohn's Jerusalem, Moses Mendelssohn, a late 18th century German Jewish philosopher, one of my favorite passages in that text is where where Mendelssohn uh, says that he's living in a generation post-printing, by the way, uh, where no one talks to anyone anymore, where uh, if you want to learn anything, you just go and read the book. Mm-hmm. And that in earlier generations, Jews talked to one another and teaching, he says, was passed down face to face from person to person in the course of life. And so without a doubt, Mendelssohn's critique is is that writing instrumentalizes learning. Uh, He says, everything is a dead letter. Great phrase. And and yet, Jews have become some of the most enthusiastic producers of writing and and, and consumers of writing as a means of the religious act. So your point uh, is very important. And I, I I would just suggest that we're living at a time now where we're seeing... The potential in some ways for a return to that orality. And I'll give you an example. I routinely, when I work with with students who are interested in learning how to lay to fill in the leather straps that that some Jews wear in in morning prayers, I routinely will instruct them to go online and to watch a video on YouTube rather than to read any number of the written explanations. Of how to do it, right? So that actually, in today's moment, Jewish tradition is being packaged and repackaged digitally, but in ways that are uh, much more embodied. And that might actually please someone like our friend Moses Uh
0: Mendelssohn. Well, I'd like to end the interview with a customary question of mine. You, in particular, Joe, have been thinking about this topic for a long time, but I think you'll agree that one of the great satisfactions of deep scholarship is the experience of discovery. So share with us something that you discovered in researching and writing this book that surprised or delighted you. Now,
1: what a lovely question. The book not only deals with the, the printers of the first edition in Bologna, but also the printers of the second edition of St. Fred in Basel. And that printer was a fellow named Ambrosius Froben, who was not Jewish who lived in a city where no Jews were permitted and for some reason decided to print this Hebrew book. And he didn't just produce Sefer Hasidim, but he produced a number of other books. Uh, in that print shop, he hired an expert and got the city of Basel to permit the presence of a Jew in the city, one Jew named uh, Yisrael Tsifroni. And Sifroni writes in another book of his how he worked in Froben's print shop and he worked in collaboration with a whole host of non-Jews, of Christians, who worked with him. And he, he apologizes in this other book for the errors that might have crept into that book and the other books that he printed, because he says that the Christians with whom he worked were not experts in reading Hebrew, and they worked on days like Saturday, on Shabbat, and on holidays, when he wasn't working. And so that he couldn't supervise them now i i have to say that this is a little convenient right he's blaming his collab his collaborators for problems that he could have avoided or not the story uh is indicative of the complex world of hebrew printing in the 16th century the print shop was a place where jews and christians collaborated sometimes face to face at the same tables, at the same presses, sometimes as in the case of the partners of Bologna with the supervision of the Pope and his hierarchy of uh, authorities, Jews and Christians were bound up together in the creation of these books, these books that have become canonical, these books that have become part of the basic Jewish bookshelf. Our sacred tradition, our sacred tradition is one that has been adapted and changed over the centuries, especially in the light of printing. And it has been Jews and non-Jews together who've been engaged sometimes collaboratively, sometimes acrimoniously, but it is that history that is written into the volumes uh, of the Hebrew library, the volumes that are often embossed in gold, uh, bound in leather, the volumes that we perceive as part of That Torah Shaba'al Peh, the the oral Torah, the oral tradition of Judaism, it is that history that's embedded in those volumes. And that history is what I have determined to make my career exploring and investigating with the help of my students at HUCJIR.
0: Well, it's absolutely been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Joseph Skloot, to share your work and to get the benefit of being your colleague at HUC. Thanks for the pleasure and for the learning about this world that sometimes we take for granted when we hold a book in our hand. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect.